The rest of you, I'm going to let you remain seated as we look at 1 Corinthians 7 again. We're just going to pick up where we left off. I did something very um, unusual for me last week, and that is uh, I ended the message before I was finished with, with all of the material. And uh, that sometimes that's hard for a preacher to do. You don't have to get it all in on one particular Sunday. I think another reason I did that is uh, because the Lord wanted us to emphasize something that sometimes we just rush past in our discussion of marriage, and that was singlehood. So uh, the text, again, is 1 Corinthians 7. We exhausted much of the text last week because much of the text does deal with what it means to be single. So I'll just remind you a little bit of what's going on there, but let's pray and uh, we'll do just a little bit of a review and then pick up where we left off last week. Talking about 2020 vision, vision for the home, a vision for marriage. And again, we're picking up where we left off last week. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit speak truth into our lives and that the grace would be ever abundant that we might be able to realize that we all fall short of your glory. But by your grace, we are made glorious in Christ, and our marriages can be made glorious in Christ as well. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to catch you up just a little bit, last week we were talking about all of these verses in this chapter that have to do with being single. And the first point of our message was the untethered vision for singlehood. I said there are different reasons that folks are single. Some it's by choice and some by a cross. By choice, meaning that there are certain people that just seem to have a gift from God for being single. And we've got to be very careful not to be critical or judging in any way. But if we understand what the Apostle Paul was saying, he said, take full advantage of that. If that is your gift, if that's a spiritual gift to someone, then appreciate that, be available, use that gift to serve the king being untethered in your singlehood. But there are others who are also untethered, and that is when it's not so much a gift, but it's a cross. We said there are those that, uh, under the cross, the burden of singlehood, if you will, it's because there is a delay. Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 4, talks about not awakening love before it's time. So there are some that are in a season of delay, you're not ready to be married. And so the Apostle Paul was saying, don't act married if you're not ready to be married. And so that's important to accept that season of delay and wait on God's timing. The second one was drought. It's where someone says, I'm old enough to be married, I'm ready to be married, but for some reason, in, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it may be, it's a cross, singleness is a cross that God has called me to bear. It's the right one has not come into my life yet. And I said, by the way, it is okay to look for the right one, especially for the man to be the leader in that process, because Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And then I pointed out that sometimes we find that one when we are just busy doing what God has called us to do. As I mentioned, I was in, uh, I headed to North Carolina not to find a wife. I headed to North Carolina to find uh, an education, to continue my education, but God knew that Tina would meet me in uh, the city of Raleigh, North Carolina, and that was part of his wonderful divine plan. Be about God's business and meet who he has for you. So um, fortunately, that season of drought didn't last longer than I could handle it, right? 
And then death. Uh, there are those who are widowed who did not ask to be widows or widowers, and you're going through a season. And, and what the Apostle Paul says in verses 39 and 40, if you can stay single, wonderful, but you certainly have permission to remarry. And then divorce. Some have called uh, divorce death without a funeral. Uh, marriage was intended to be for a lifetime, and the cross that some bear for some reason or another is that perhaps their spouse abandoned them. Who knows? There's a, a number of reasons that people go through this. It's not God's plan. It's not God's will, and God can restore. And we talked about exhausting all possible measures for restoration and seeking the grace of God in that process. And uh, I mentioned words like closure and counsel and contentment in that season of life. And so, God is very serious about how you manage singlehood. And we have to ask the question, why is that so important? Well, it's so important because of what we're looking at today. Not, not today focused on the untethered vision for singlehood, but the uncorrupted vision for marriage. See, it's important to understand what it means to be single and how to live single so that you're ready to embrace what it means to be married. Now, I realize that we use the word untethered for singlehood, and all of a sudden you're saying, okay, well then, if you're married, that means you're tethered, right? You're joined together with somebody, and we use, there's an old cliche that people use to refer to marriage, and I want to encourage Christian men not to use this and not to say it this way, but they refer to their spouse as the old ball and chain. None of you have ever used that, right? The old ball and chain. I, I like to think of a, a, an old country song from back in the late 80s by a fellow by the name of Paul Overstreet, a Christian musician. He, he said this, he, he, the lyrics, and I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll, be, I'll, I'll bless you by not singing this morning. Paul Overstreet sang a song that said, Love don't feel like a ball and chain to me. I think that's a good way of putting it. In other words, if you are called to be married, if it's God's will, God's plan for your life, when you operate according to God's will and God's plan, being tethered together with your soulmate, with, with the one that God has placed in your life for life, does not feel like a ball and chain but there is greater freedom in that commitment than you ever could have imagined. You'll see marriage as teamwork instead of a tether. And from time to time, Tina will, will, will be joking around and she'll say something like, well, you know you're stuck with me. And I'll break out another 80s musician. Um, and I, again, I won't sing for you like I do for her, but uh, Huey Lewis. Anybody remember Huey Lewis? He says, yes, it's true. I'm so happy to be stuck with you. And so I'll, you know, I'll break into a little Huey Lewis, and, and again, my singing is just for her, and I'm not going to do that for the rest of the congregation. But I'm happy to be stuck with you. That's what marriage is all about. Yes, you're tethered together, but it's a good thing, and you realize that, and you love that. Uh, girls, as a matter of fact, often begin dreaming of their wedding day from a very young age. I could talk to some of the girls that just left here or some of the young ladies here. They're already putting their wedding plans together for when they get married, what their wedding is going to be like and what's going to be involved in their wedding and where they're going to get married and all that. But I got news for you, young ladies, by the way, your mom has already started that process too. 
Early on in marriage counseling, I discovered that a lot of times what mom had already dreamed of and, and what the daughter had dreamed of were kind of two different things. And so it's not keeping the husband and wife or, or the, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be together throughout the counseling. It's keeping the bride-to-be and the mom together throughout the counseling session. One mother told her daughter this. As the daughter was finally got fed up with all the arrangements and all the planning, the daughter said, Mom, it's my wedding. And the mom said, no, it's not. I had my mother's wedding. You're going to have my wedding. And if you have a little girl, then she can have your wedding. I thought that was um, pretty interesting advice there. Uh, Young men don't often think much about what the wedding day is going to be like. They just kind of want to get through it. Some of them will have the honeymoon plan 10 years before they get married, but they don't know what the wedding, or most of them don't really care what's involved in the wedding process. The vision for marriage has to go much beyond a wedding. And so as we look back at the text, we'll see some things in 1 Corinthians 7 that give us a little bit of guidance for what this is all about. Um, Let me give you four reasons for marriage, four purposes for marriage, because if we do not tie our vision for marriage to a purpose, then we won't have a vision that will last. So you've got to have a reason for the vision. Not just, well, we we fell in love. When folks tell me we fell in love, I want to ask, who tripped you? If you fell into it, it's infatuation. If it's a choice, it's love. By the way, love and infatuation carry the same emotions, so they're hard to tell one from the other. But again, love is not a feeling. It's not infatuation. Love is a choice. And, And so let's see what's a good foundation for marriage based on these purposes. First of all, it's a picture. Marriage is a picture. Now go back to verse 2 again. Remember verse 1, he says it's good if you don't get married. If you can be single, if you have the gift of singlehood, then wonderful, enjoy that, celebrate that. But nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, what is he saying there? Because obviously most people don't have And so he says let them have. Literally, that word means to take ownership of, but it's used In such an arrangement here, if you could see it in the Greek text, it means not only to have, but to hold yourself to. Let each man hold himself to one woman. Let each wife, each woman hold herself to one man. So marriage is a picture of covenant relationship. Marriage is a picture. We might put it this way. Marriage is a little picture of the big picture. As we covenant together, in this relationship where we have ownership. You know, everybody today seems to, to want to be so untethered even in relationships where they need to be tethered, where they need to be one. I heard of uh, one guy walking down the road on Valentine's Day, ran into a friend, and he had a, a little poodle in his hand. And he said, hey, I, I got this poodle for my wife. And the other man, not getting that it was a gift for Valentine, said, what pet store did you go to? I wonder what I could trade my wife in for. A lot of times people begin the whole process of saying, what could I exchange? How could I get out of this situation? They're saying, what's in it for me? But the covenant relationship always puts the other first. It is a big picture, first of all, of, it's a little picture of the big picture, first of all, in the Old Testament of God's covenant relationship with Israel. Marriage was designed for the Jewish people to be a picture of God's covenant relationship 
with his people. In Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5, he traces it all the way back to creation where he says to Israel, your maker is your husband. God being the husband of Israel. In the example of Hosea's entire book, really, when he he describes what's happening in his life, God told Hosea, as a prophet of Israel, to go and marry a prostitute. Now, I always tell uh, the, the Bible students that I teach, be sure that you don't take a text out of context. He's not saying anybody who wants to be a prophet of God needs to go marry a prostitute. But what he was doing, particularly in Hosea's life, was he was saying, listen, I want you to marry a prostitute because I want your love for her to be a picture of my covenant love for Israel. And when Gomer, I mean, what a name for a woman, right? Gomer. When Gomer abandoned Hosea and went back into her ways of harlotry, God doesn't tell Hosea, well, you gave it your best shot. You tried. He says, I want to show Israel how strong my covenant love is for Israel. So God told Hosea, you go and you buy her back. And so when she was at the end of her running from God and and running from her husband and involved in all kinds of harlotry and prostitution and you name it, eventually caught up in the sex slave trade of that day, being sold on an auction block, Hosea shows up and he buys her back. There is not a greater picture of covenant love in all of the Old Testament than when Hosea buys back Gomer and cleans her up, makes her his wife again, restores that relationship. Marriage is to be that kind of picture of God's covenant love. And what that tells me is nothing is beyond the grace and the power of God when it comes to reconciliation. That's why we take reconciliation so seriously. When when families seem to be broken up, I believe God can heal those families by his great grace because he's done it again and again and again in Scripture. And that's the kind of God that he is. He is a God who restores In the New Testament, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following, the Apostle Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And so marriage is that picture of covenant love between the Lord Jesus and the church. The way the wife submits and respects her husband's authority and and leadership and the spiritual leadership he provides becomes a picture of the church's love and adoration of Christ. You know, one of the greatest needs that men have in their life from their wife is adoration. You you talk about the five love languages. Sometimes it's words of encouragement and gifts and all that. But every man needs adoration. He needs to know that his wife thinks highly of who he is and, and, and what he's doing. And that's what the church offers to Jesus Christ. We gather, and I'm not saying give your husband, ladies, I'm not saying give your husband a Messiah complex. Your source has to be Jesus, not him. If you put all of your hope in who your husband is, he will let you down from time to time. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. But show that kind of respect and love for your husband. Love him as you would love Christ. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. It is a little picture of that big picture And he is glorified in the world. That's why marriage outside of one man for one woman for a lifetime distorts the picture. You know, God even allows, a lot of times we we can talk about Old Testament. Well, that's about Israel and and God's relationship with Israel. New Testament, 
is Christ and his church. And so if you're not Jewish in the Old Testament or if you're not Christian in the New Testament, then you don't have to hold to biblical standards for marriage and family, right? Well, I realize it's hard to teach Christian ethics to non-Christians. But do you realize also as you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you read Genesis 19 and Romans chapter 1, God will allow societies to self-destruct when they do not abide by God's standards for the home? You say, well, you know, why does it bother you when things like uh, this football player from Missouri comes out and he says, you know what, I, I just want to tell everybody I'm a homosexual. He walks into the um, basketball arena where he goes to college and the whole stadium stands up and they applaud his coming out as a homosexual. Well, you're so, Pastor, why is homosexuality, so homosexuality so bad? If people want to make a choice to love somebody, what's to deal with that? Listen, it's all because God's divine plan from the very moment of creation, when he created Adam and Eve, was for there to be a picture of his covenant love between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And anything outside of that picture distorts the picture. And so, by the way, as we are critical of that taking place, and by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, there's a new wave of political correctness when it comes to that issue in the world today, but God's standard never changes. What God has designed for the home never changes one man, one woman for a lifetime. But in the same way, if we are involved in adulterous affairs or anything like that in a heterosexual sense, it still distorts the picture. And we need God's grace to bring restoration. What's the second purpose I want to share with you this morning? It's right out of the text as well. It's purity. Purity. Going back to verses 2 through 6 that we introduced last week. Let a husband render to his wife the affection due her. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. A lot of men just want to stop right there and not read the second half of the verse. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Let's keep that in the context of all of the Bible. What does Christ do for his church? He cherishes the church. He nurtures the church. So that means the authority you have over your spouse's body is always for their best interest to encourage them, to build them up, to nourish them. But there is certainly a physical connotation here. Do not deprive, verse 5, one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and to prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Paul is saying this, and he kind of clarifies, I'm not commanding you that you always have to be intimate. But he says, it is some pretty good advice that you guard the purity of your marriage, that you go above and beyond not only, listen, I realize there's an aspect of this that is totally taboo in a setting like this. There's another aspect of this that should be very public. I think God desires for public displays of affection. I think God thinks it's cool that sometimes Tina and I will flirt with one another in front of our kids until it drives them absolutely nuts. I think that's a good thing. I think that there's an aspect of this that needs to, listen, everybody else in the world wants to come out of the closet. It's time for men to say, you know what? I'm coming out of the closet. I love my wife, and I'm not ashamed to tell somebody that I love my wife. And in the world in which we live today, this ownership aspect that he has discussed in this passage, there are times in a group setting 
Maybe at a Christmas party, maybe at a company get-together that you have sometime. It may be because your wife works for a male boss or whatever. You need to, in some way, explain and show and demonstrate publicly, wait a minute, by the way, she belongs to me. We are together. We are with each other. And do all that you can to protect the purity of your marriage. When he says, going back to verse 2, let each man have his own wife, it's based on because of sexual immorality. The word there for sexual immorality in, in the Greek is the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. It has to do with immorality or, or fornication. And by the way, they didn't need 2,000 years ago, they didn't need the Internet to find stuff like that. It was on display publicly. I know that we say sometimes, can things get any worse than they are today? Listen, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. This kind of corruption was as big publicly in the Greco-Roman world in the first century as it is on the Internet today. We have to make a choice to protect our marriage and protect our family from that onslaught. Song of Solomon alluded to a moment ago is a picture of that covenant relationship with God and Israel, but it's also a picture of purity. It would be hard for you to read the Song of Solomon from beginning to end in front of a crowd and not blush because it gets graphic in the detail of the sexual experience. What is Solomon saying there? Live life God's way. Live out marriage God's way, and there will be no greater pleasure in life than a God-honoring marriage. That's why I believe that singles have to be careful not to become too emotionally involved. When you begin, I used to have kids in the youth group come and tell me, Pastor, I went on a date and it was wonderful. I wanted to be Christians. First thing we did is we held hands together and we prayed together on that date. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. You don't want me to be spiritual? Listen, you start holding hands and praying together, your souls will begin to bond. If it's just two of you, one man, one woman, one young man, one young lady, you hold hands and pray, your souls begin to bond together, and what is happening emotionally and spiritually will begin to want to become something that is happening physically because that's what God designed marriage for. I mean, go out, hang out in a group, pray together in a group, but be careful about that one-on-one time if you are single. Guard the purity of your marriage even before you're married. In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus explains, do you not realize that from the beginning God made them male and female? By the way, that hasn't changed. Male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined, has to do with physically, emotionally, spiritually, and in every way, be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. The consummation of a marriage is more than a physical union on the honeymoon. It is giving yourself mind, body, and emotion, your whole spirit to your spouse. There's an innocence about that. There is a mystery about that. Proverbs says that's one of the mysteries, the way of a man with a virgin. It's talking about the honeymoon. There's an aspect of that that has remained a mystery that is taboo and off limits for discussion even among Christians. That's something that is a hidden thing to the glory of God. There's a purity in that. 
Parents, rejoice if your kids stay naive about these things for a long time. Guard that as much as you can. Purity of a marriage. There were some folks walking through, and and some young fellows had just heard a a lesson on purity, and they were walking through a, a flea market going to try to find some cheap furniture for a dorm room or something, and and they saw this sign that said, concerning some clothes, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. Slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. And one of them said, you know what, that's what the purity thing is all about. That's, that's why our, our pastor and our youth pastor doesn't want us telling dirty jokes or watching junk on the internet or anything like that. Because it may seem like for a moment we're only being slightly sold by it but we're greatly reducing the value of our marriage one day when we get involved in stuff like that. Even if you're already married, you greatly reduce the value when you are slightly sold by the things of this world. And so we need to keep ourselves pure. Marriage is a picture. Marriage is for purity. The third purpose, obviously, many people have um, guessed at this one ahead of time, but procreation. It was in the context of the first marriage, Adam and Eve, that God said, be fruitful and multiply. There's some New Testament insight to that as we interpret it through the lens of the New Testament, that being fruitful and multiply may refer as much to spiritual children or as it does biological children, or it may refer to as much adoption as, as biological children. It's that we multiply ourselves in this world, that we make a difference through bringing new children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Then the New Testament adds that there is a family that every family is a part of. It's called the church family, and we are to reproduce as a church and reach more people with the gospel. It's part of the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But it's also reproducing ourselves spiritually, leading others to faith in Christ, not so they're born for the first time, but so they're born again. It's part of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that we're bringing up, raising up a a new generation to know, love, and serve Jesus. Whether that happens biologically, through adoption, through ministry together as a couple, that's one of the purposes of marriage, procreation. New Testament emphasizes, obviously, the spiritual. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Disciple your children. Bring them up with a vision for others. We're going to build on this next week as we talk about parenting and and our purpose in parenting and and bringing up a generation to know, love, and serve God. But realize that's part of the purpose of marriage. I know that a lady wrote a book in the 90s that sold like hotcakes. It takes a village. And, And perhaps because of the church and the community and our involvement, there is a village aspect to all this. But first and foremost, it takes mom and dad. It takes a family. And that's the starting point. God ordained the family, or he ordained the home before he ever established the church. It takes a mom and dad in that situation. And then finally, I want us to see the plan. The plan. It's a picture. It's not only a picture, it's a purity. Then we add to that the fact that there's a plan, that that God is working all this together. We need to think about the assumption of the passage, the assumption of the chapter. 
the verses that we looked at last week, when you begin to look at verses 17 through 24 and the rest of the chapter, what is the Apostle Paul saying about singlehood? He's saying, listen, here's the wonderful thing about being single. If you are free, you can go and minister. You can be more influential. You can have this great call of God on your life and go and do these things. But if you don't have the gift and you need to be married, then go ahead and be married. And here's what's understood in the context, and that is this, that you need to be in your marriage more than you could be when you are single. And if that's a little bit confusing, here's the question I give to couples when they come and talk to me about getting married. I'll ask them this question, and they need to have an answer if I'm going to do their wedding. What makes you think you're going to be stronger together than you could be apart. What makes you think you're going to be stronger together than you could be apart? What, what's your plan for serving the Lord? What's God got in store for you? I want young ladies to think about that ahead of time because I see a lot of times young ladies grow up in the church and they're serving the Lord and they're in children's ministry and their youth ministry and they're, they're, they're singing or doing other ministries in the church and, and they get all on fire for who Jesus is and then they marry some guy that has no interest for the plan of God on his life and then they disappear and you don't see them anymore. She's coming to church without him for a little while and then she gives up. What's God's plan in all this? Young men, the same way, find that we used to call them a wog, woman of God, somebody who wants to serve the Lord with you together. When I asked Tina to marry me, I quoted Psalm 34, 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's become greater as a team than we ever could be on our own. Without that kind of vision, there's little motivation for staying married. The plan must be based on his mission. Marriage brings partnership. It brings accountability, accountability to our walk with God. See, nobody knows us like our spouse. Nobody knows whether we're walking with God or not any better than our spouse. Brings accountability to worship, to worship him, to glorify God in every area of our life to our witness as we're seeking to be that little picture of the big picture. It's, it's a verse that many of you hear often at weddings, and the interesting thing is it has to do as much with Christian partnerships and work as it does in marriage. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, listen to these verses and see if it describes your marriage. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though they may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord, a cord of three strands, is not easily or quickly broken. Why did he go to three there at the end? I believe that's God all in the mix. See, if you don't have the spiritual gift of singlehood, what he's saying here is it's better to be in on God's plan as a married couple saying, you know what, we can be more fruitful for the kingdom of God than we ever could be alone. So what's your vision? What's God's plan for your life as a married couple? 
How do you want to shape your children in the next generation? How does your vocation, how does continuing education, all those things fall into what you're doing as a couple? How do you think of the retirement years? You might be in your 20s or 30s this morning and and still kind of new in this marriage thing. Have you talked about what you want to do? Maybe, maybe you're like, hey, we don't plan to retire. We, we, we do what we love. We just want to do it till the day we die. But have you talked about what, what and how you're going to serve the Lord in your retirement years? If not, you'll just kind of say, okay, well, the retirement years is when we check out on God. And then you'll get away from that which held you together. And we're seeing people get divorced in their 60s and 70s and 80s as a result of that. What's your vision for impact as a couple? And how often do you talk about it and pray about it? And over all of this, intertwined in all of these purposes, is what we were singing about earlier, the grace of God. When it comes to being a Christian and when it comes to living out the Christian life and when it comes to having a Christian home, most of us will say, well, that's just that's too difficult. It's too hard. We can't get it all right. Even on the way to church this morning, you know, probably some family was sitting here going, if y'all don't be quiet, we're going we're to have World War III right here in the car. Life can be hard, but intertwined in all of that is the grace of God, that third chord that finds us at a stage where we can look back and say, wow, a lot of things we, we didn't get done that we had hoped to get done, but the grace of God has brought us to where we are today. And the grace of God will carry us the rest of the way. At the Atlanta airport, if you've ever come in from one of the terminals to that long escalator, I mean, it it really, you can't see the top of the escalator when you walk up to it. You expect that angels are going to be greeting you as you make your way into heaven when you get to the top of the escalator. You see it, you're like, man, that's a long flight of stairs up there. When you get there, you realize, no, I just need to jump on and go with it. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get to the top, but I don't know if I could ever climb a flight of stairs that high, but I'm just going to get on and I'm going to kind of go with it. The grace of God when it comes to marriage and family is a lot like that. There are so many steps that seem impossible to get it right. So many steps to being a good husband, to being a, a godly wife, to bringing up good kids. And when it comes to the Word of God, it seems intimidating. How can I live by this standard all the time? But, but it's kind of like that escalator. Just get in it. Just get on it. And just go with it. And you'll understand at the end of the journey that, yeah, you made a lot of mistakes, but you are where you are by the grace of God. And you're thankful for what God has given you because you simply submitted to His grace, to His Word, to His authority for your life. And so I don't preach this morning to intimidate you. Last Sunday, talking about singlehood. This Sunday, talking about marriage. To say, wow, we never get it all right. Never get all these facts down. Never get these principles fully digested. You want this out of heaven. But by the grace of God, you'll be able to look back one day and say, wow. God blessed me with a wonderful marriage, wonderful family, and I thank him for it. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?